the concept of oneness, which is really nice on a spiritual level, is also very threatening to like our basic egos, right? And so we we thrive on highlighting differences. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Parallax, where in this episode, we'll be discussing disparities in care. Um, this episode is supported by Zoll and is intended for healthcare professionals. It's a pleasure today to be joined by our special guest, Dr. Anuradha Lala, who is a cardiologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I'm sure her name needs an introduction. She also serves as the Director of Heart Failure Research and as Data Coordinating, uh, Data Coordinating Center Leadership for the NHLBI Cardiothoracic Surgery Network. She's interested in the clinical management of heart failure. Uh, she's actually the co-editor-in-chief of Journal of Cardiac Failure, as all of us know covering a wide range of aspects, such as caring for patients with mechanical circulatory support devices, heart transplantation, handling cardiomyopathies, and managing high-risk cardiac surgical cases during the perioperative period. Anu, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us. It's great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much, Angkor. It's such a privilege. Uh, any opportunity to get to sit and, and chat with you is always very treasured, so thank you for having me. Oh, the feeling is very mutual. Um, and, you know, like we were discussing, we need to catch up after we're done with this podcast. So let me start this episode by by asking you about the importance of even discussing a topic like this in 2023, 2024, um, that is disparities in care. Why, why does this matter? Wow. Well, I mean... I think we are living in particularly tumultuous times that is distressing for for everyone. Um, and I think increasingly we are reminded of how often our differences are highlighted as opposed to the underpinnings of oneness. And I think that... Um, that therein lies the biggest problem, you know, not to anchor you and I share this, this deep love, um, and, and really spiritual quest, um, in life. And I think at the base is disparities has become such a buzzword. And I think at the base of it all is this incredible discord that we all feel within, because on a basic level, we recognize the undeniable oneness and the undeniable similarities we all share as human beings. And yet we know that care is given in disparate ways based on things like race and based on things like religion and gender and access. And I think therein lies the greatest problem. I think we all recognize um, the, the inherent need for basic rights like healthcare, and when there is a difference in how that is offered, available, um, and delivered, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with how we exist as human beings. And that's why it's so incredibly important, not only to talk about, but then to do something about. Um, yes, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I mean, oneness is um such a crucial concept to understand i think 
for those of us who understand it or think that we understand it, um, we desperately want our peers to also understand it. Um, and, uh, you know, I would like to, you know, bring up um, a mention of uh, a, a mentor here, um, Dr. Michael Gibson, who's an interventional cardiologist at Bethesda Deaconess Medical Center, my former attending physician when I was a fellow. And he's, as we know, uh, those of us who are active on former Twitter, now X, or other social media platforms know of his love of painting. And, you know, he uh, recently came up with a beautiful painting, which is titled Oneness. I, I think those of us who understand the topic um, really want this to disseminate um, it to uh, to our peers and and hierarchy and patients alike. Um, Anu, what, what do you think um, are some of the challenges that you've encountered in person when approaching a topic like this amongst fellow peers? Because, and, and, and I'll be upfront with you where, as to why I'm even asking this question at the first place. The, the genesis of this question is that I have encountered, you know, in my own sphere, um, have encountered uh, being um, considered as quote unquote soft or, you know, quote unquote emo um, and not really, um, not, 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 re not really being, you know, professional, serious, scientific, what have you. And I, uh, I, I have uh, felt discord with that uh, because, uh, you know, I, I would like to believe that I'm, um, uh, an evidence-based, um, hardworking physician who um, will do whatever needs to be done for the patient. Um, and I, I let myself at ease when I'm at the bedside with the patient and I, I, I tend to connect with them emotionally. I'll stop here. I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer this question. And, and just, I mean, I, I, uh, are you specifically asking, like, how do we talk about this from a scientific evidence-based perspective rather than just sort of talk about it on a philosophical and, and kind of maybe spiritual level? That's what I'm hearing yes. you, you say. Yes. Yeah. I, I that is exactly, I hear that. that is exactly the question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally hear that. I think Ankur, that's such a, yeah, it's just hitting the nail on the head, right? It's like there is, I shared that philosophy with you because I think that is the root of why this is so important. And I think that is a sentiment that is inherent to all of us. And so whether that's considered soft or mushy or whatever, quite frankly, um, you know, there's oftentimes this, this notion of how do you know something is true? It's because you feel it to be true, you know? And I think that's where that soft, mushy, maybe quote unquote, non-evidence base um, comes in. But that doesn't change the fact that that may be the basis for why we pursue studies and why we try to gather data. Um, but ultimately, the data doesn't lie, right? Uh, we just did a small analysis um, of, of looking at trends in uh, emergency room visits for those patients who are living with heart failure. 
And it was just remarkable to see that there were differences in, based on race and ethnicity in terms of wait time and in terms of the demographic of patients presenting. I mean, patients uh, of Black race were much younger and just as sick as their white counterparts. And so what does that tell you, right? It tells you that not only is there there's a there's maybe there weren't as many disparities in care in this particular study but my gosh look at the difference in who was being who was presenting to the emergency room right so black patients were up to 10 years younger than white patients um but just as sick and so what does that tell us how can that translate into um solutions to to mitigate disparities in that regard and it maybe tells you like listen and this may sound overly simplistic, but you know, um, interventions that are community-based and targeted at younger individuals is probably what needs to happen when we know that patients of certain races and dispositions are more vulnerable to risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, obesity, et cetera, for a variety of different reasons. So that's just one example. So I think the the basis is okay, why is this important? And I truly believe that it's based on this underpinning of oneness um, that we all inherently know to be true. And then we also know that healthcare should be a basic human right. And then you take it the step further to say like, okay, now let's gather data to show that there are indeed disparities. And then let's use that data to inform interventions that can mitigate those disparities. So to me, whether people call you, maybe I'm defensive of you because you're my friend and we also are very aligned in our values, but who cares? <laughs> Ultimately, it's the fuel to pursue the acquisition and the study of, and, uh, of data that can better inform how we can fix the problem. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I know which which actually brings me to my next question, um, you know, based on how you... Um, you know, answer this and thank you for answering it so eloquently. Um, and that is the inherent knowing of the concept of oneness. And yet we have these disparities. I mean, you know, um, apropos to the study that you just shared with us, and thank you for sharing that study. We'll actually put a link uh, to that study in our show notes. Um, when, uh, so this is a two-part question, you know, why do you think this exists, this exists, so the why behind it, despite uh, the um, inherent philosophical maybe understanding of oneness amongst physicians, or so I would like to think, and then, and then do, um, do you think, um, and I'm going to reference uh, Daniel Kahneman's book here, which is Thinking Fast and Slow, in which he, you know, very eloquently takes us through this pathway of conscious thinking and subconscious thinking and how subconscious thinking actually guides so much of what, uh, how, how we end up living our lives and the kinds of decisions that we make. Um, so the two-part question is why this exists. And the, the second part of the question is, do you think that there is a subconscious bias involved in why disparities exist at the first place? Yeah, wow. I mean, what a powerful question. I yeah, to simply answer your question, yes, I do think there is a lot of subconscious bias and I'm probably guilty of it too. I think we inherently are programmed to judge so that we can understand our place in the world. And 
to make sense of our place in the world, uh, you know, in our own ego, we seek to understand and highlight the differences between us, right? I think the concept of oneness, which is really nice on a spiritual level, is also very threatening to like our basic egos, right? And so we we thrive on highlighting differences. And when we do that, we take it a step further and judge according to those differences, right? Like I'm taller than you. I'm short, you know, oh, he's shorter than this person, or I have more money than you, and I have more access than you, and I'm smarter than you, and this and that. And it allows us to form a sense of identity. And uh, I think that's sort of philosophically the reason that things, you know, um, that subconscious bias does exist a hundred percent. And like I said, I'm, it doesn't spare me just because I'm talking about this and, or I can, I can try to put some distance between the concept doesn't mean that it doesn't, that I'm not guilty of it as well. Um, and, and, and as to the, why it exists, I, I think it's for that reason in, in that, that is how human beings try to distinguish themselves from one another. And then based on judgments, there's this, idea, which is faulty, of course, that if you have more or if you are quote unquote better by whatever conventional standards we define things as, then you are more entitled to XYZ. And I think healthcare has become a part of that that whole paradigm, which is, you know, inherently flawed. Um, yes, well, I mean, I, I really liked your answer. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, I've, I've thought about this and, you know, I, I think all of us have our own, um, inherent subconscious biases and, and that is, um, I, I think a byproduct of the, um, environments we were exposed to as, as kids and as children and the, the lives that we've had, right? I mean, different backgrounds and different circumstances and um, different uh, kinds of access to uh, different opportunities. Um, so I think w one would obviously have the that subconscious bias and the, the idea is to um, somehow, somehow tap into it um, and access it and 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 become self-aware, which is my next question, is the fact that um, every human being will have a subconscious bias, let's consider that as a fact, as a scientific fact, as has been shown beautifully by some of the scientific work that Daniel Kahneman did, which which I think I think it it got him the Nobel Prize. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll have to reference that myself. So don't don't quote me, listeners, if if you've heard this year and he, he has not won the Nobel Prize, but uh, I can certainly <clears throat> encourage all of us to read that wonderful book. Um, so uh, Anu, uh, and you, you may, maybe you don't know the answer to this. I certainly don't know the answer to this and hence the question is how, how have you identified? And I'll, I'll give you a personal anecdote um, coming from a very vulnerable position myself. Um I'll give you an anecdote which I uncovered, but um, have you uncovered any of your subconscious biases or have you tried to, or have you identified them one? And if you have, have you tried to uncover those and has it changed any aspect of your life, you know, either as a person or as a physician? 
I, I, yeah, you're right. It is a super vulnerable space. I, I definitely have uncovered some of my own biases and I continue to do that. And I think, I think, you know, making it okay for us to be vulnerable about this is really important. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. I also coming back to this idea of oneness that we've, that is sort of unexpectedly come out, but is so, so, so central to this conversation. I, I'm quoting with, um, Clyde Yancey, who's, you know, a, sort of a revered mentor for me and, and friend uh, and guide. I really like, you know, he states that if COVID-19 taught us anything, it was that the absence of health in any one of us affects the health of all of us. And I think, you know, it's it's sort of like all boats rise with rising tides, right? And maybe that's a more appealing way for us to recognize the importance of equity um, as a necessity rather than as a luxury or as something that is morally better, you know? Um, so I think uh, therein is, is potential motivation, A. And then B, coming to your specific question, I think I, I definitely have recognized biases. I think I, you know, I, I'd like to think, I hope uh, I'm certainly on a quest for self, for better self-awareness, um, where I would make judgments on, on people or on, uh, on work, which was not necessarily, you know, founded. And I think when you learn that everybody has a story and, um, it's important to 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 be vulnerable and to be humble. Uh, I really like, you know, Indra Nui, uh, who used to be the CEO of Pepsi. Um, I think someone asked her once, you know, what was your guiding light? Like, what is your mantra, so to speak? And one of the things she said, which really touched me, was always assume positive intent. And I really like that concept because it it inherently allows for open-mindedness. And I think some of the differentiation, some of the differences, some of the, the judgment comes from a feeling of being threatened, right, on some basic level. And w when one does feel threatened, it's because there's fear. And there's fear of what? You know, fear of feeling diminished, fear of not, uh, whatever it may be. But when you come into this, when you come into interactions with individuals with the assumption that there is positive intent or intention, then it it, it renders you more open, more open-minded, um, more receptive uh, to understanding an individual's circumstance or position rather than jumping to judgment. And gosh, I mean, I, I've been wrong so many times, and I'm sure I'll continue to be wrong many times, but when one takes the time out to try to to take a to 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 distance oneself from what's happening on a daily basis to say hey what could i have done differently or what didn't go right today or where was you know where what are opportunities for me to show up better tomorrow then i think you have that space to say yeah let me let me try not to to be as judgmental quite frankly Yes, you know, what a beautiful answer, Anu. And, um, you know, I think what the, the quote that you shared from Dr. Yancey, I think is the health, the quote unquote health version 
of the quote, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, right? That is, I think it's just an allegory um, from a health perspective, such a beautiful quote by the great man himself. And um, I, I think, and th thank you for educating me and actually on, on Indra Nui's ideology um, and, and psyche as to, you know, always assume positive content. I think there is so much, um, how shall I say this, negative uh, or, or conditioning about assuming, um, you know, negativity when, when people approach you with certain things, you know, you always question, you know, what's the, what's the underlying motive? You know, what's the, what's the catch here? You know, that's sort of become the default thought process of the society right. that we but live in, you know, like what's, what's the, what's the catch here? Why is he or she being so nice to me and X, Y, or Z, whatever your circumstances, right? Um, that yeah, I think we have to begin by stopping doing that, right? Um, and assume positive intent, like you, like you mentioned, and then it totally changes your perspective. It broadens your vision. It expands your horizon. Um, and I think that is the crucial first step to mitigating bias, you know, at a subconscious level. So thank you for that. That's actually a great tool. That's a great tip. Uh, I'm going to start exercising that, you know, beginning now. Um, you know, I love these well, conversations, Ankur, because honestly, they're invitations for us all to be reminded of things like this, too. You know, like, so I want to thank you for having me on this conversation, because I, I too, am reminded of these things that sometimes get buried in our in our subconscious or in the back of our brains when we're dealing with everyday life. But yeah, I do think it's a helpful tool. Yeah, it is. And I'll I'll just add on to this. And, you know, this is just to consider this as um, as tips or tools from two physicians who are talking about addressing disparities in care, right? I, I know I'm sharing this with you personally. And this is a tool which um, I sort of, I don't take credit for this. I think this was, this happened um, during a conversation I was having with my father, who is an avid reader of Ramcharitmanas. And, you know, for the listenership, you don't have to be, um, you know, from the, um, from, from the Hindu tradition or the Hindu religion to understand what I'm referring to. Ramcharitmanas is a, is a religious te text in Hinduism, uh, one of the core texts in, in Hinduism. Uh, which, uh, you know, uh, refers to the epic Ramayana, for those of you who are interested. But Anu, uh, this is a personal anecdote. Uh, I was having a conversation with my father and, you know, and I said, uh, you know, this is something which um, I think I always knew about Sri Ram or Ram, who is the, the protagonist, the main protagonist of this epic. Um, but I sort of never thought of it this way. And... Uh, it just recently dawned on me that Ram, um, despite all the trials and tribulations that he had to face in his life, and you know, you and I know what he went through in life, um, I, I've, I would never see him perturbed. I would never see him complaining. I would never see him as a victim. I would never see him uh, even angry or a miffed or um, distraught. Um, and, you know, I mean, Ram obviously is, is for, for a reason, a celebrated God. But part of me thinks, you know, maybe Ram was a human. I mean, Ram was God in human form. That's what, that's what our religion teaches us. But, you know, the, the writer or the novelist in me thinks, you know, maybe Ram was just uh, one of you or one of me, uh, you know, several thousand years ago. And he just unlocked 
um, what we are trying to unlock now. And that is that, um, you know, assume positive intent. You know, that was something else which came to to my mind when you mentioned that to me. So um, I sort of told that, that, you know, each time I want to be angry or each time I want to be upset or each time I want to play the victim um, or each time uh, I'm distraught at a situation, uh, you know, I sort of think of Sri Ram. So I've called it between him and I, we call it the Sri Ram philosophy. So whenever he's distraught, I remind him of the Sri Ram philosophy. And whenever I am distraught, he reminds me of the Sri Ram philosophy. Um, but, but I think these are just, I think, similar concepts. We're just putting it differently in different words. Uh, but I, I thought that I would share this with you. This is sort of like a personal anecdote, which just dawned on me very recently. No, I love that. I love that. I think it's like, it also it also speaks to equanimity, right? And And sort of not going crazy with the... T- with you know the highs and lows right um or 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 the 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 inherent desire to kind of make things binary right this person's good person this person's bad person this person was or this was a good day this is a bad day this is this you know like we inherently do that when in reality everything exists across shades of gray so i i really thanks for sharing that yeah no i i couldn't agree with you more um so uh, anu uh, regarding um disparities in cardiovascular care let's um you know educate us or talk to us or you know we can discuss this together you know and you you certainly um you know see this as a heart failure cardiologist i see this as an interventional cardiologist um in terms of if if we have to sit here today and sort of talk about um i'm sure there are disparities across the spectrum of care delivered um, and care received by our patients. But if you, according to you, if you have to sort of list your top three priorities within cardiovascular care for our patients, where do you think these disparities exist? And, and I'm sure there are many across the spectrum, but what would be your top three? I think really the social determinants of health are really very hard to capture because they're so intertangled. Um, you know, whether it comes to economic stability or um, education level, access to food, um, like the community that one lives in, um, you know, that there's also this incredible notion of of factors that go into resilience. Um which are many of them are social determinants of health as well. So I think for me as a priority, I think better understanding how different social determinants of health relate to one another and then cumulatively impact disparities in care is really, really vital. You know, Dr. Fuster has taught us this. I really loved this. I used to think that it was kind of a unique, maybe not so, it didn't really touch me then as much as it does now, where he really believes that the only, not the only, but one of the most effective ways of changing health is really at the family level, at the level of a child. And so what he's done with Sesame Street in creating a character that advocates for healthy eating and healthy lifestyle to, you know, the Familia Project, which is in Harlem, where he goes 
with you know his team the grant is is uh been awarded to find a team going into families and talking about healthy living and healthy uh, eating etc at the child level and then the 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 goal is to follow these patients or people individuals rather longitudinally to understand how that truly impacts health i think is something that is undervalued and perhaps understudied purely because of the complexity of it and the longitudinal nature of it so i think that's uh, something that would be really interesting i think psychological well-being is also influenced by many of these factors and so better understanding what it means to have a healthy mindset is i think also understudied um because of it because of its complex nature as well um and i think both of these um, sort of broad categories apply to all different aspects of where we see disparities in care we see disparities in care based on race, based on ethnicity, based on gender, sex. We see it based on socioeconomic status. So it depends on what we're specifically talking about. So I don't, I think if you ask me, Anu, what are the two most obvious ways we see disparities in care? I would say race and ethnicity. But I think that they're so complex in terms of how social determinants of health play into those two categories, if you want to say, um, that to me, better understanding those factors is is really of of critical importance. I know it's it's not really a, per, a right answer to your question, Ankur, but uh, at least the long it's it's sharing the lines along which I think. Yeah, no, I, and I think um, you know it doesn't really have to be um, the right question to right. It's it's a complex question, so I, I think. Asking you to um, list top three would would be sort of like an it's a, it's an unforgiving question because it it's uh, like you said it's um, it's a comp it's a complex web and it's an interplay of uh, so many factors. But I, I agree with you. Uh, I think um, what COVID really highlighted was the the poignant significance of social determinants of health, which. I think weren't discussed in such fervor as they are now or being now at least, or is at least my perception. Um, so, and, and I think, um, you know, cardiovascular health, um, I've, I've sort I sort of have started to, um, see this, um, as, as a public health measure, you, you know, uh, and, um, you know, now through, through my role with, with, within the Indiana chapter of the American college of cardiology I'm, trying to parse ideas um, you know where we intersect with public health and I think in part what dr. Fuster's work is is about is about you know public health and thank you for bringing up Sesame Street um, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the hundredth episode of parallax that was with dr. Fuster um, yeah, in I which he saw that I actually didn't get to listen to it but I want to because I, I'm sure it was awesome. I could just imagine the synergy and conversation there. Oh, it was it was phenomenal. I, I think I was enlightened to a very philosophical and very spiritual side of him. Um, yeah, uh, you know, totally. such a humble, such a humble man, and um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, and, and so have so have our listeners. I actually recently reached out to him. Just uh, letting him know as to how much this has been appreciated across the globe. I, I get messages uh, from 
from different people across the continents and thanking me for bringing him on. I actually say, you know, thank him for being so open and vulnerable and, you know, taking time from his vacation to do this for us. And um, again, for those of you who have not listened, you can tune back in uh, to listen to that uh, centennial episode of Parallax. But no, Anu, thank you for bringing this up again um, in terms of why social determinants of health are so important. And we see this across the spectrum of care delivered within cardiovascular medicine, you know, whether it's preventive cardiology, whether it's advanced disease that you deal with, uh, you know, and patients who are um, being hospitalized or being evaluated in clinics for heart failure, or function not failure. Uh, thanks to you for <laughs> championing that. Uh, I've actually, you you would find this very, um, I, I don't know, inspiring maybe, is, is that in my notes, in, in my notes, I've actually started to put in parentheses, function not failure um, in clinic oh, because I, 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 do, I, I do think it's the way to go forward. I mean, who, which other field like you in your talk, I, I think um, someone shared your talk from HFSA um, online, yeah. I think on X and I just happened to browse through the slides, slide deck, and I agree. Like, what other field uses failure <laughs> to to categorize or you know define themselves or call themselves? You know, you know. Nice to meet you. I'm a heart failure cardiologist. No, I'm a heart function right. cardiologist. Um, right. So no, no that, that was thank you. Thank you for putting that slide deck together. That was, you know, addresses disparities in how we label ourselves. We <laughs> we we must not do that to ourselves. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, um, so Anu, you know, may, final few minutes here for the podcast, and you know, thank you for such a beautiful conversation. I could just go on and on. Um, I know, me too. In, I'm like sad returning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, in terms of uh, you know, sort of the final um, minutes of the podcast here. Um, so, what what do you think are um, some of the, for lack of a better word, quote-unquote low-hanging fruit interventions um, that can be done at the bedside for those of us who are listening who want to address disparities in care? Um, well, according to you, maybe some of the, maybe some of, maybe some tricks from your toolbox or some of the, some of the interventions you've used um, to address disparities in care at your own level and at your own microcosm. If you can share that yeah. with us, I think that'll be helpful to the listenership. I love that. Thank you, Angkor, for asking all the, you know, the questions that I feel like I, I mean, look, I feel almost like not even appropriate to be the person speaking about disparities, but I can share what little things I think have made a difference in my, in my practice. And, I, and I'm actually going to, um, take what you said and and just run with that, which is the uh, really um, emphasizing the words we use and and how much they matter, especially in in medicine. And I think with respect to disparities in care, I think this becomes so, so relevant. So I'll share a few things that I think are problematic, if you will. You know, one is that we, set up our presentation at the medical school level with chief complaint. Now, I, to me, that just sets up for opposition, 
right? It's like you're on one side, I'm on the other side, and you're a pain. You're complaining to me. Nobody wants to be complained to, right? And then it's up to me as the clinician to find a solution. So I think if we can change it to a chief concern, and this is not, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. This has been brought up many times, but like, let's change the way we talk about our interactions with patients at the, the just just this simple thing i think can make such a huge difference as opposed to when someone comes to you concerned you're immediately filled with feelings of empathy right this is like human nature as opposed to opposition so i think that's one thing it also helps you understand personalized context right as opposed to you're complaining to me um so i think that's that's one example of how our words matter i think another example of how our words matter are when we say so-and-so is non-compliant. That to me really drives me bonkers. And I've I've tried to make a, a concerted effort to not do that. And rather than saying so-and-so is non-adherent or non-compliant, um, you know, like a typical, what do we say? Typical HPI is so-and-so is here admitted with acute heart failure in the setting in the setting of medication non-compliance. And so I would say, why don't we say something like so-and-so is admitted with acute heart failure? Barriers to adherence include polypharmacy and um, you know, inability to afford medications in the setting of recent job loss. Boom, totally different scenario, right? I mean, one is like, oh, this guy's never or this girl or this whoever, <laughs> this patient is never going to take their meds. They're just going to keep coming back in and out they're non-adherent. And it's this cast off talking about judgment, right? Like we were talking about before, as opposed to, hey, let me understand the context. Let me understand what the barriers are to adherence. And then it's like immediately invites you to be more solution oriented. So that's another example. I think we need to get rid of this idea of non-compliance or non-adherence. Number three is we use, especially in the world of heart failure, heart function rather, is this so-and-so is not a candidate for XYZ. And we typically use this with respect to advanced therapy. So-and-so is not a candidate for transplant. And can you imagine from a patient perspective, you get this, you get this letter and it says, sorry, you are not deemed to be a candidate for this life-saving therapy. My goodness, talk about feeling ostracized or feeling judged. When in fact, what we're really meaning to say is, you or this patient would not derive benefit from a given therapy due to X, Y, and Z, right? Immediately, it's you're focused on the intention of the therapy as opposed to casting judgment as to candidacy versus no candidacy. So that's another one that drives me just bonkers. So those are three examples at the ready where I feel like by changing the words we use, it can change the way we approach patients. And it has, I think, tremendous potential to mitigate bias. Yeah, I mean, this, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, um, and, you know, I'm just, I, I feel so enlightened. Uh, I, I, I think it's what really uh, was impressionable to me listening to you um, was um, just using concern versus complaint. And, um, And thank you for making me more mindful of what I put in in my notes. I think so much of it just comes from being on autopilot after having gone through, you know, medical school and residency and fellowship and sort of being exposed to a certain way of writing and expressing yourself. I mean, these are um, crucial, crucial um, lessons 
for for us as physicians and you know other healthcare providers or allied healthcare professionals who are listening tuning in crucial to um humanize you know what we put in our in our notes and now that you know we know that our patients have access to what we put in certainly um has had an improvement in how they um receive care perceive care how you know engaged they become in their care so i couldn't agree with you more that these are simple crucial steps for um for us as physicians uh, when we are putting our impressions down um and sharing them with with patients and you know quite frankly you know others in others in the hospital you know on staff and you know these our notes are read across the spectrum of you know providers and even payers and i think it's important very important to change how we represent um the dialogue that we have with our patients excellent you know thank you thank you for that answer it was it was very impactful um and will change the way i write notes um you know starting starting monday <laughs> um you know you know to you too across I know we only have a just we're probably over time, but just I, I think also utilizing platforms like this are so important to have these kinds of dialogues. So kudos to you for sort of changing the way, you know, and the types of conversations you're having on on this really impactful platform. Uh, and I think you know for speaking on behalf of my really dear friend and colleague Rob Mens, we're trying to do the same at the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Is like. We don't have to follow conventional norms just because they've been done for you know years and years and years. We can change how we all communicate and what we prioritize using these these really important platforms. Yes, and you know certainly I see that um, I see a lot of progress in in the way you've handled the journal with uh, with Rob Mans. Um Congratulations to both of you. Um, the one, the one other thing, which I don't know who's, who, whose idea this was, but something which, um, I picked very immediately was, um, the scarves that you gave to your editorial board at HFSA, those purple scarves were, were gorgeous. Um, <laughs> I'll get you one. I'll get you one. I'm great. <laughs> so thank you for that. It was like, whoa, this is pretty sharp. Like for a conference, you have a scarf on with a, you know, with, with the suit jacket is going to be, looks very, very sharp. So, you know, thank you for all that you're doing, um, utilizing your opportunity to, uh, to build a better platform and changing the dialogue and the conversation. You certainly are someone I look up to and, uh, follow your work. So, uh, congratulations for everything and all the amazing things that you've done. Um, Anu, thank you for joining us today, you know, um, and for, for the listenership, uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did having this wonderful conversation with, with a colleague and a dear friend, um, stay tuned for our next episode in this mini series. Uh, do share your feedback with us on X, LinkedIn, other social media platforms, um, on email, uh, you know, we love to hear back from you and we uh, do try our best to get speakers and guests on the show who you want to listen from. Um, so thank you again. Um, and we'll see you other Monday. Thank you. 
We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.